Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hello again. How are you? For part four of your time at the Academy, we're going to begin by taking a trip to ancient Greece. We're going to hear a familiar voice. Hey, Roman. How are you doing, Ella? I am good. Roman Krasnarik, the public philosopher and fellow longtime thinker who we talked with in part one when he spoke to us about the tyranny of now. It's a beautiful day here in ancient Greece. The skies are blue over the Acropolis. What year is it roughly? We're in the middle of the 5th century, during the period of the rule of Pericles. I can see a lot of men gathering. What is going on? Well, of course it's men, and of course it isn't women, and it isn't slaves, and it isn't metics or immigrants. And they are gathering because they are there to talk, and not just to talk, but to do politics. And one of the great things about ancient Athens at this time, as we look around on this sunny day with the insects around us, is that democracy was being born, and it was being born through people participating in it, those who counted as citizens. And if we compare that to where we are today, it was very different because it was about direct democracy. It wasn't about having representatives who were there to espouse your interests for you. You were doing it yourself. Okay, well, let's find somewhere to sit. I guess it's going to have to be on a rock. On a rock, in the shade, under a tree. Let's do that. Welcome back to the Longtime Academy. It's great to be together again. So, if we travel back from ancient Greece and the birth of democracy to today, right now it feels like our politics is buckling under the pressure of the almighty challenges we're facing. Through things like climate change, the pandemic, inequality, systemic racism... It's like our politics and politicians who are supposed to represent us can't handle the world that's hurtling towards us. And not surprisingly, discontent with democracy is at an all-time high. When you see them clustered together at global political events, it's like most of our leaders are not able to act like good ancestors, even when the stakes are at their highest. To me, it feels like our politics is mired in the present tense, and what we need is for it to have a future tense. The question is, how? To start answering this question, let's return back to Roman, who, before he became a public philosopher, did something a little different. My own work history is as an academic. Back in the 1990s, I was actually officially a political scientist. And at that time, I was, according to other people, an expert on democratic governance. But in retrospect, I think that there was something missing in my vision of what democracy was all about. Because at the time, it never even occurred to me once that we failed to give future generations any kind of voice or representation in our political systems. They're kind of disenfranchised. I couldn't even see that. So what factors do you think are at the heart of political short-termism? 
Well, the most obvious factor is that thing called the electoral cycle. You know, if you're operating on cycles of four years or even every couple of years in some country in, for legislative elections, your politicians are going to find it very hard to see beyond the ballot box next time. And then that gets wrapped in with opinion polls and focus groups and all these things. So that's, one might say, a design challenge of the way democracy works today. Another cause of short-termism is digital culture. You know, those politicians can barely see not just beyond the next election, but beyond the latest tweet or the latest headline. The third factor, Rich, is really the importance of special interest groups, particularly corporations, who are intent on meeting their own short-term interests and being willing to dump problems on future generations on the long term, in a way. And we see that particularly with the role of fossil fuel companies in electoral funding. And then I'd say there's one final factor, which is a slightly different one, which is the nation state. Just think of all the countries sitting around international conference tables, arguing with each other while the planet burns and species disappear, intent on maximizing their own near-term interests, their economic growth, their fossil fuel experts and things like that. I think there's a bunch of factors there which are pretty tough to fight against, but which are all pushing us towards the present tense in our political systems. So one of the things I sometimes hear people say is that with such urgent challenges, we just don't have time for democracy. It's failing us. And instead, we should go for a kind of benign dictatorship. Something that's really struck me over the last few years is the increasing number of people who you might consider to be quite progressive or very informed who are calling for benign dictators to solve our multiple crises from climate change to the threats of new technologies. I too have felt that desire for a benign dictator sometimes. You know, you look at all those squabbling politicians arguing with each other, just worried about their ministerial careers, and you think, oh, God, I wish they would just focus on the stuff that really mattered. And all the time I hear people saying, I wish we were just a little bit more like China. Look at their long-term investment in green technology, solar panels, all that stuff. Or look at a country like Singapore. They might be a little bit short on civil and political rights, but wow, they've got fantastic long-term investment in education and healthcare and public housing. And that really raises a question, an empirical question. Is it actually true that autocratic-leaning governments perform better on long-term public policy issues than democracies. Because of my political science background, my slightly geeky desire to measure stuff, I did some research on this, working with a brilliant statistician called Jamie McQuilkin. And Jamie invented something called the Intergenerational Solidarity Index, which ranks 122 countries on their long-term public policy performance in environmental indicators like renewable energy in the system or economic indicators like wealth inequality or social indicators like long-term investment in healthcare and education. And those countries have been ranked with countries like Costa Rica and Iceland near the top and the UK down at number 45 and the US at number 62. But then the next bit is what you need to do is to correlate or try and match up how democratic a country is against their score on this intergenerational solidarity index. And there's lots of measures of democracy out there that political scientists use, and the one I've used is called the VDEM, Liberal Democracy Measure from the University of Gothenburg in Sweden. It turns out that of the 25 highest scoring countries on the intergenerational solidarity index, 21 of them are democracies. And of the 25 lowest scoring countries, 21 of them are autocratic governments of various kinds, monarchies, military dictatorships, and so on. And so basically what it tells you is the more democratic a country, the more likely it is to have good long-term policy. So the idea that China or Singapore are good models, they're outliers really. If you want to have long-termism, probably better to back democracy, but that doesn't mean that the world's democracies can sit back and relax because every country could do better in its long-termism. So the real question there is, okay, how do you redesign democracy to make it more effective at taking into account the welfare of tomorrow's citizens, the future holders, as I think of them? So... 
Is there a democracy that has ever done a good job of taking future generations into account, of literally standing the test of time? Well, I think there you could look at some of the very complex forms of political organization in indigenous cultures. The Haudenosaunee Confederacy, for example, in North America, which brought together uh, six nations to, in a way, steward their lands, partly to stop each other fighting, killing each other, but also to be ecological stewards as well. And deep within the whole culture is a principle of decision-making over the long term, sometimes known as seventh-generation decision-making. There's certainly records going back at least to the 19th century, written records of the idea of seventh-generation thinking being brought into Native American decision-making around land rights. And I think that is something where we can find inspiration. I agree, because the Haudenosaunee form of democracy goes back way, way further than the 19th century. In fact, it's lasted a thousand years. So let's take a little field trip to present-day New York State, deep into Haudenosaunee territory, to learn how exactly they've achieved this. We are the oldest living, continuous democracy on the planet. This is Michelle Shenandoah. We met her and her mum, Diane, in part one where they taught us about seventh-generation thinking. Michelle describes herself as a recovering lawyer and is now the founder of Rematriation, an organization that celebrates the legacy and future of Haudenosaunee culture. We're meeting her on a hot sunny day at Ganondagan, a place of huge historical significance for her people. So let's follow her up these stairs. So I'm a little winded. <laughs> We're arriving now to the top of this small hill. And here at the top, there is a longhouse. The longhouse is stunning. It's about 70 feet long with a pitched roof almost two stories high. And the entire exterior is covered with large elm bark tiles. The longhouse actually is more than just a home. It represents our way of life. We call ourselves a Haudenosaunee, which means the people of the Longhouse. We are a united nations of six nations, and originally we were five. But a thousand years ago, the Haudenosaunee came to a place of very brutal, bloody wars with each other. It's even said that our people engaged in cannibalism. There was a young man who was born on the other side of Lake Ontario, and he knew that we were at war. It said that he traveled in a stone canoe across this great lake and brought a very special message of peace to our people among all of our nations and our villages. It said that he took one arrow and broke it and then took five arrows together and showed that it was much harder to break. The peacemaker showed us how using a good mind, having compassion, unconditional love for each other, and having thankfulness for this natural world around us brings us into this place of peace. And he brought together a formation of 50 chiefs and clan mothers that would work together as a brotherhood and a sisterhood that would govern these lands of all of the five nations. And this is really where the form of democracy begins. So that's how these spaces were built. So this building is literally designed for democracy. As you come in, you'll see seating all along both sides of the longhouse. There's four uh, fire pits that are right down the center. And warmth is one element, but it also has a lot to do with the process of how we make decisions back and forth across 
the fires to be able to come to places of consensus. Inside, there's rafters that uphold the walls and rafters on the ceilings. You could make them higher, you could make them longer. And that's the point. We accommodate for all people to make sure that we include everybody. We don't hear about this in the history books, but the Haudenosaunee ways of doing governance have had a profound influence on American democracy today. The modern democracy that people know today that comes from the Americas was influenced by our form of democracy and governance. When these founding fathers were here, the world they lived in was very indigenous. They had many interactions, negotiations, agreements, treaty making with our people. Benjamin Franklin had spent a considerable amount of time studying how we made decisions. How is it that you can bring multiple nations together to the table to be able to come to agreements? Many of the systems that you see at play in the United States government came directly from our people. We have three sides where decisions and issues are passed back and forth across the fire, just like they're passed back and forth between the Senate and the House of Representatives and the executive within the United States. You can see that. You can see some of the symbolism that's there as well. Our people buried the weapons of war underneath a great tree of peace, and an eagle sat on top of that great tree of peace as one who is the protector of the people. And so now on the U.S. dollar, you can see that there's the eagle there holding the arrows in its hand. But whilst the Founding Fathers may have appropriated some of the Haudenosaunee democratic practices, it's particularly interesting to look at what they left out. The Founding Fathers deliberately omitted pieces of importance, specifically the role of women and the role that women and clan mothers play within a democracy. That type of power or position is completely stripped away. And you will see that it really truly is only white landowning men who had power within the Constitution. With that, you look to the suffrage movement. That movement was born right here within the heart of the Haudenosaunee territories. They saw that our women had absolute autonomy over our bodies over our mind, over our voice and our opinions. Matilda Jocelyn Gage, who's one of those early suffragists, is quoted saying that no place was justice more perfect than among the Haudenosaunee. The Haudenosaunee are traditionally a matrilineal society. This means kinship runs through the female line. The peacemaker brought together a system of chiefs to our already existing role of our clan mothers, a sisterhood that pre-existed our Haudenosaunee Confederacy. Clan mothers like Mama Bear. Greetings and good day. This is Mama Bear. I'm from the community of Ogwazasne in upstate New York, which straddles the Canadian-U.S. border. I'm a third-generation clan mother. The clanship was designed to create separation of power. Women are the foundation of our levels of governance. The men, our chiefs, are the walls and the roof. And your chief and clan mother are in servitude to the people. They don't self-agenda. They don't run campaigns to be voted in. The leadership rises from the people, and they're accountable to the people. As a clan mother, I'm in charge of putting up a leader. My authority is to look out over his leadership. I have the right of nomination. I have the right of recall. I have say whether we call for war or whether we call for peace. for ratification in 
our I can community. propose matters to go into I the name the babies. I also arrange marriages. I have my hand on the economy. I'm also political representation, which means I bring forward the matters, settle disputes, especially domestic I'm disputes. also in charge of the historical position library. of and chief and clan mother is a life term. So when a clan mother is looking to raise a chief, she does not look for the leader that is loud in lobbying and campaigning for his greatness. She looks to the corner of the longhouse and looks for the man who knows how to listen and who is willingly stepping into his role as helper and caretaker. For Michelle, the way this political system is set up is key to thinking more long-term. Our whole entire confederacy, our ways of democracy, our ways of coming to consensus, our ways of living with each other is all rooted and founded upon these great laws of peace that were given to us, grounding us and guiding us because it does guide us. That's seventh generation thinking. When we're in together, in meetings, in council, and thinking about the types of decisions that we're making and how they will impact future generations. We really take our time in making decisions. And I think that's one thing that sometimes can frustrate outsiders because they want a quick decision. Deliberation is a key aspect of how the Haudenosaunee make decisions that are good for future generations. We have to think through the impacts of our decisions today. Oftentimes when we can't come to consensus on a particular issue, it's said that we sleep on it. One thing that's also said is that when the adults don't know how to resolve an issue, sometimes we ask our children because they are just this pure, open vessel to creation, and they will speak the truth. We are a house of law vested in consensus, reasonable thinking, and deliberation. Have we inspired and empowered our people to a place of reason, goodwill, good light, and kindness for everyone? From the smallest baby to the oldest elder and every age in between have we served everybody for the next seven generations while the decision we make today hinder diminish or leave a mess for the seventh generation from us today and so you have to consider the past the present and the future when you're in deliberation The Haudenosaunee still meet in that same form and structure that we have been meeting in for hundreds of years. As people, the creator, who we call Sengwe Adisu, who created us, gave us what we call original instructions. And those original instructions talk about the responsibilities that we have to give thanks for this natural world. The Thanksgiving Address is also known as the Opening Address, or the words before all else. So we say them when we wake up in the morning. That's how we start our day. That's how we start our meetings, any time that we gather. It creates the attitude for a productive and honorable meeting. And it's waking up first thing in the morning and giving thanks for the breath that we breathe, the sun that has come to join us for another day, and for all the materials that we need to make creation possible. And we give thanks to our ancestors who continue to be with us. And we also then give thanks to those future generations that are guiding us, then we move on to give great thanks to Sanguayatisu, to our creator, for providing all of this creation to be here for us. And when we give thanks for them, we say, and now our minds are one. We are open and we can now begin our business. 
and discuss our matters for the day. I think of it as the great humbling, to be humbled before creation. It's a beautiful way to spiritually remind yourself that you are only a small part of a whole. I believe that it removes ego, and it also removes self-agenda, which means deliberation is purely and genuinely in favor of the collective, not the individual. Mama Bear has translated the words before all else into English and recorded them for you, the students of the Longtime Academy. It's our practice for this week. You can use it first thing in the morning. It's said that we say the Thanksgiving address before our feet even hit the floor. And last thing at night. Or if you want to become a next level longtime ambassador, you can use it when you're running a meeting that you think could benefit from a little long time thinking. One person who has been very inspired by Haudenosaunee democracy is Professor Tatsuyoshi Saijo, Director of the Research Institute for Future Design at the Koji University of Technology in Japan. I used to be an economist. My specialty is designing abstract social systems. We're meeting him because he's used some of these ideas to create ways of enabling people to inhabit the future when they make policy decisions. Back in 2012, Yoshi was invited to give a talk at the University of Massachusetts. And I gave a talk about how to solve social dilemma. It was a conversation over the dinner that happened after the talk that first got Yoshi thinking about how to bring the people of the future into decisions made today. After my talk, everybody went to a Chinese restaurant. We started talking about uh, climate change, many other important issues. We don't have any future people in our current decision-making. So I said, okay, we can create imaginary future people. It was at this point in the dinner that someone told Yoshi about a culture that already brought future generations into its decision-making. They are supposed to think very important issue in current situation. They are supposed to go to seven generations later. I was so shocked. The people he's talking about, as you've probably guessed, are in fact the Haudenosaunee. After that, I started talking to the people at Osaka University. Wow, there are people who think about very important issues from the viewpoint of seven generations later. They like this idea. They began by conducting an experiment. It's called the Intergenerational Sustainability Dilemma Game. Initially with about 200 students, they gave each student two options. With option A, We can give you $36 right away. You'd receive more money now, but that amount will be cut each generation by $9. With option B, you'd receive a bit less now, $27. But that figure would stay the same for each generation. So this means that if participants kept choosing option A, within four generations, there'd be no money left to give. And if they chose option B, this exercise could probably go on indefinitely. The students were put into groups of three. In some of these groups, one of the students was told that they were a representative of future generations and needed to negotiate on behalf of them. One out of three people. One person is not gonna be majority, then what will happen? The results were astounding. When no future representative was present, only 28% of people chose option B, the option where they received less now, but that figure would stay the same for generations. But when a future representative was present, 60% chose option B. And after that, I saw that, wow, this may be effective. What came out of these experiments, and the ones that followed, is now called the Future Design Movement. In 
In its early incarnation, this involved placing ads in local papers, inviting members of the public to come and join discussions affecting their towns or cities. Then, in these discussions, the group would be split into people from the present and people playing an imagined role from the future. The two groups would then negotiate with each other. Unfortunately, this format often led to a breakdown in those negotiations. And they started fighting each other. So instead, Yoshi fine-tuned the sessions so that now people don't imagine future people, but instead imagine themselves, the same age that they are now, in the future. I'm supposed to think about the issue with the same age as before. Issue is mine, not for the future people. To help people inhabit the future, Yoshi uses theatrical elements like music and film, some light change, and even props with participants wearing special robes or caps. Then they can be imagine future people. That is amazing, right? This is where the power of future design gets really interesting. Getting groups of people to consider the present from the perspective of the future seems to really change how they think about problems and the kinds of ideas they come up with. The process has been used all over Japan. In one area, planners needed to ensure that when there were earthquakes in the future, people had access to water. Initially, participants wanted to go for thousands of miles of earthquake-resistant pipes. But when they started thinking from the future, they came up with a completely new, more effective and simpler solution, installing cheap water-purifying devices in all of the houses. It's surprisingly practical shifts like this that are behind the growing use of future design in policymaking. Future design is now being adopted as a standard practice in some of the places that Yoshi first trialed it. First town where we conducted some future design session, they created a future strategy division. In this division, everybody is supposed to think about a present from the future. And the designs created by time travelers are being put into action today. Starting from the last year, Yahaba is supposed to make some future plan using future design. And uh, we conducted about uh, six sessions, spending about a half year. And, uh, Future people created so many ideas that actually 83.3% of ideas get into their future plan. I love the creativity of Yoshi's work with policymakers. This, alongside the Haudenosaunee, was a big inspiration for a long-time project we did last year during lockdown with policymakers from across the world. On Zoom calls that brought together people working in government from Taiwan to Toronto, we got them to design tools to help their institutions act with care for future generations. These included simple things that staff could do straight away, like having an empty chair at meetings to represent future generations, or creating an acknowledgement of the future to be used at the start of all meetings. We usually began these sessions with the human layers exercise I shared with you in part one that connects you directly with past and future generations. If you haven't tried it yet, do give it a go. It's in your feed now. What we noticed was that doing this exercise and thinking about present decisions from the future was a real game changer. I wonder, how would it feel for you to think about some of your current decisions from the perspective of the future. If we want to think more about a new kind of democratic institution that acts in the interests of future generations, we could look to the growing number of citizens' assemblies
one of the most notable successes to come out of a citizens' assembly is in Ireland. Members will certainly know, I think, what way this assembly is recommending that legislation be enacted to deal with termination of pregnancy, any rights of the unborn. In 2018, an assembly proposed a referendum on the liberalisation of abortion laws eventually leading to these emotional and powerful scenes. Votes in favour of the proposal, 1,429,981. Citizens' assemblies combine a lot of the ideas we've discussed so far. They're based on a more participatory model, reminiscent of ancient Greece recruiting ordinary citizens, similar to a legal jury, to come up with solutions to collective issues. Like the councils of the Haudenosaunee, they foster a more deliberative approach to decision-making. A representative spread of the population is selected, with different backgrounds and perspectives, who then deliberate their way to a solution after having been presented with evidence. And interestingly, the future design approach has even been integrated in two of the recent climate assemblies in the UK. So, it's still early days for citizens' assemblies, and whether governments will give them real power remains to be seen. But they are one of the signs that people are trying to change politics using long-time principles. Hi, my name is Eve, and I'm one of the teachers at Headspace. There are a lot of incredible ideas being discussed here at the Longtime Academy. I thought you might like to take a moment to let some of these ideas sink in. I invite you to take some deep breaths with me. So breathing in through the nose... and then out through the mouth. And one more deep breath in through the nose. And then out through the mouth. And just allowing your breathing to return to its natural rhythm and its natural rate. So if you'd like more of this, along with meditation courses, sleep, and focus exercises, join me inside of the Headspace app. Go to headspace.com and use code LONGTIME at checkout for 30 days free. That's headspace.com, use code LONGTIME at checkout. Now, back to the show. At the start of this episode, Roman and I explored the short-termism of our political systems. One powerful way we can force those in power to think beyond their election cycles is by using the law. It's a particularly potent mechanism because often the law predates and outlasts the politicians that have to operate within it. One of the earliest examples of the kind of law that can help in our fight for the rights of future generations was developed nearly one and a half thousand years ago. I think it was 513 CE, Emperor Justinian, the Roman emperor, his team wrote the Roman Civil Code. And in that code, it says that governments have an obligation to protect certain resources that are essential to life. And it lists the air, the water, the seas, and the shores of the sea as public trust resources. And this concept or doctrine called the public trust, it's a beautiful and simple law. It's been used in many countries in England and the United States, mostly to protect water. It's been extended to forests and land. And we are now making the argument that the climate system and our atmosphere are part of the public trust and governments must protect them. This is Julia Olson, and she is the founder of Our Children's Trust. 
I'm a lawyer and we are now 10 years old and we represent only young people suing their governments over the climate crisis. Julia can pinpoint the moment she really started to think differently about her approach to the climate crisis. I was nine months pregnant. I went to a small theater in my town and watched An Inconvenient Truth, which was playing. I sat there in the heat of the summer with this enormous belly and watched that film and just wept. It was not new information, but to see it play out so viscerally and with this baby inside of me who I was bringing into the world It was definitely one of the most profound moments in my journey to start our children's trust. In 2011, on Mother's Day, they launched a whole strategic legal campaign in the US, with lawyers bringing legal actions across 50 states, as well as one against the federal government. Even though most of these early cases were dismissed, they still made small and significant gains in the process. The first judge to say that the atmosphere is part of the resources that have to be protected by governments under what's called the public trust doctrine was a judge in Texas, Judge Triana. And we gained a lot of information about how to continue the work and improve the cases. When they first filed these cases, they were what you call failure to act cases. So really, they were based on claims about the government's failure to address the climate crisis. But as Julia and her team looked at the evidence, they realised that the situation had been largely caused by the government. So around 2014, they started to change their approach to show how the US government had fueled the climate crisis by making decisions that turned the United States into the biggest producer of fossil fuels in the world. One of the key cases that has gotten the most attention around this is the Juliana versus the United States case. It is a constitutional case brought under the the Fifth Amendment, which protects people's rights to life, liberty, and property. and equal protection of the law. And these youth are saying our government is depriving us of our basic human rights and its conduct is harming us physically in terms of our health, the security of our homes, our mental health, and this conduct will only threaten our lives if it continues. All of these young people have felt the harms personally by climate change. It's true, we all have a stake in this case because all of you are in this case with us. And I think by bringing in the stories of children right now, it helps tie us to the future because they are young. So right now we're walking over to Paradise Beach. This beach, Paradise Beach, is about five minutes drive from my grandparents' house and about 20 minutes drive from my house. My name is Levi Draheim. I'm 14 years old and I'm from Melbourne, Florida. I love to swim in the ocean, surf, play with my dog, sail. And also, I enjoy suing the United States government, and I'm the youngest plaintiff in the Juliana versus the United States lawsuit. Being part of this case since I was about eight years old, so a little over a third of my life now. This is a sea turtle nest right here. I've always lived pretty close to the ocean. It has given me a really good understanding of nature because I've grown up going to the beach. You get to see how quickly something can change. One second, it's really sunny. The next second, it's starting to get darker because the storm is going to come in. Well, climate change definitely affects kids my age and the way that we think about the future because I grew up on a barrier island, and that barrier island is at sea level. And since it is at sea level, even if there is just like a big storm, 
um, not even a hurricane, some areas of the barrier island will flood. When I was younger, just probably like seven or eight, I used to have a reoccurring nightmare that the barrier island had gone completely underwater and there just was everywhere lightning, thunder. Like one of those dreams where you just can't move. And it just really freaked me out a lot because I was young and also I knew that that could very well be something that could actually happen because of climate change. If climate change continues, then this beach will slowly disappear because of sea levels rising. And then so all the, like, the sea turtles that come nest here every year, they won't have anywhere to come and nest. So all these horrible things will happen if we don't take action on climate change. I don't want where I grew up to get destroyed. I might not be able to show my baby sister the areas where I grew up. She might not be able to go to some of the springs that I've gotten to go to. I want to be able to show her those things. And if I have kids in the future, I would like to be able to show them where I grew up and where I live. But that might not be possible with the way that things are going currently. So it went from really bright, sunny, super hot to really, really windy. I think it's time to go. So many of the outcomes of these cases depend on the reaction of the judge in the courtroom on the day. Good morning, Your Honors. May it please the court. I'm Julia Olson. Going to trial and seeing judges and things like that, you can kind of start to figure out what they're thinking by the way that they're asking questions, if they are asking questions. I remember one time we were in the courtroom and Julia was on the stand. Julia had been giving her argument. A judge, he was interrupting a lot and asking a lot of questions. The standard is whether plaintiffs have plausibly no, you're pleaded this, standing. You're, you're, asking the sec- you're answering the second part of I'm, my question. And he Let's was really pushing me on. What's the big deal about why everyone's going to be harmed by climate crisis? Whatever harm they're suffering is the same as everybody else in the country. And I explained... Actually, they are suffering different harm, and the federal defendants have admitted in various documents that children are disproportionately experiencing the impacts of climate change and will going forward. And so I did say to him quite directly, and it was (laughs) an honest moment and perhaps not the most respectful I've ever had in a courtroom. In addition, Your Honor, they will live far longer than you. It was pretty funny to see her shut him down pretty quick. They will live to late in the century when the seas are projected by these federal defendants to be 10 feet higher. And in the evidence that's before you in uh, Dr. Wanless's declaration. When we talk about courts, we're really talking about people, right? Judges make up the courts and judges are human. And this is very much a human story of how people view the world and what kind of courage they have to really be a good ancestor. There are judges who come from a place of resistance and fear, and they respond by saying, it's not the role of the court to step into this. It's too big, and it is one of the most angering things to hear from judges tell children who do not have the right to vote that they should go vote. Having a 12, 13-year-old be told to go vote, it just does not make any sense at all. But I suppose that the best moment of being in court is like when you know that something is going your way and that you have a fighting chance There are another group of judges who do something very different. And not surprisingly to me, many of them are women and mothers. And they look at the case. They really pay attention to the facts. They see that there is significant harm happening. And they make a different decision. These judges say... 
a climate system that sustains life and health, the climate system we've all grown up in and our ancestors lived with, that is fundamental to life and freedom. And governments shouldn't have the power to deprive children and future generations of that right. And then they say these young people should have the right to go to court and have a trial and prove their case. Those judges are bold. They have the law on their side and they don't bow to the political majority and say, you fix it, we're gonna step out. The courts are going to increasingly play an important role as a check on the political majorities in countries around the world. Right now, there are children suing their governments in South Korea, India, Pakistan, Australia. Big case was just argued before the Supreme Court of Norway. There are children suing in Canada and Mexico were deeply involved in those cases. So it's just everywhere. Young people have been rising up about climate crisis for quite some time. I think that these cases have given them more of a spotlight. And it seems like it's starting to pay off. Not only is one of Julia's cases in Montana about to go to trial, there's even an extremely conservative judge in Australia who's taking the side of future generations. It is difficult to characterise in a single phrase the devastation that the plausible evidence presented in this proceeding forecasts for the children. As Australian adults know, their country, Australia, will be lost and the world as we know it gone as well. The physical environment will be harsher, far more extreme and devastatingly brutal when angry. As for the human experience, quality of life, opportunities to partake in nature's treasures and the capacity to grow and prosper will be greatly diminished. Lives will be cut short. Trauma will be far more common. Good health harder to hold and maintain. None of this will be the fault of nature itself. It will largely be inflicted by the inaction of this generation of adults in what might fairly be described as the greatest intergenerational injustice ever inflicted by one generation of humans upon the next. And for Julia, the successes around the world don't stop here. We've already seen some really exciting big wins in places like the Netherlands where their highest court said, this country must reduce emissions and by a set deadline. And we've seen a, a really big win in Colombia where young people sued the government over its failure to protect the rainforest. Every social justice movement that succeeds, succeeds because you have people in the streets and you have some legal frame change that's happening as well and it all kind of comes together. It does take a long time. Sometimes it feels hopeless, but seeing that there is other people that are part of other lawsuits or part of other movements that have had a lot of success around the world is really, really inspiring because I know that there is still hope because I've seen people be able to do the same type of thing and get positive results. So I know that there is still hope and you just have to stick with it. Know that you're fighting the good fight, that you're doing this for the best reasons possible. Even if you don't win the lawsuit, you know that you have inspired a lot of people and brought awareness to the issue of climate change. To be a good ancestor in whatever you're doing is to ask the question about what would a child want and say? What would I want for that child thinking forward 50 years, 100 years? I think what they would say is they want you to, one, pay attention don't turn away from this problem or from them. Do everything in your power 
to try to get those in power to do something about this. Use your talent however you can, whether it's marching in the streets alongside them or calling your politicians incessantly or using whatever your special skills and you know career path is to do something about this crisis. What they would not want, and they are really clear about this, is they do not want to just be your hope. They do not want to be the heroes. They want everyone to step up right alongside them. So existing laws can be used to force politicians to think about the future. But if we really want to build a more future-thinking society, we're going to need to write some new, better laws too. And this has finally become a reality in a small country with a lot of sheep. Wales is a country of enormous character. Three million people, 10 million sheep. It was the home of the Industrial Revolution. People from all over the world came to Wales to work in these incredibly hard jobs while the money left Wales and made people rich elsewhere. So Wales is a country that demonstrates how exciting it is to be small. It's a small country with a very big vision. This is Jane Davidson. A decade ago, she was a minister in the Welsh government in the UK. Although Wales did have a small parliament in the 1400s, the Welsh government as we know it today was only formed after the people of Wales voted in 1999 in favour of a Welsh assembly. Well, look at that. Who could have predicted these scenes and that result? And as you can hear from this BBC report from the night the results were announced, it was by a razor-thin margin. 0.3% nationwide in Wales of a victory for the Yes campaign, everything. We were really lucky. The parliamentarians who agreed the very first Government of Wales Act agreed to have a duty to promote sustainable development in everything we did. Now, from my perspective, the duty to promote was absolutely not enough. Jane decided that what was needed was a new law to get all public services in Wales to take future generations into account and to be held to account for doing this. Jane literally wrote the main points of the Act on the back of an envelope on a 45-minute train journey between Bristol and Cardiff in 2010. And just a year later, her vision became a reality when the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act was voted into law. The Act requires the public services in Wales, including the Welsh Government, to think long-term, to be preventative, to integrate their thinking so that it doesn't operate in silos, to collaborate with others in terms of how to achieve the outcomes. This kind of massive change doesn't just happen because a new law says it should. In order to promote and enforce the Act, it created a special commissioner to look out for future generations. This idea is sometimes attributed to the late writer and social commentator Kurt Vonnegut, who in his last in-depth broadcast interview on PBS said, It's one thing that no, no cabinet had ever had is a secretary of the future. And there are no plans at all for my grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Vonnegut wasn't the only one who thought it would be good to have a government official looking out for the interests of our great-grandchildren. These kinds of offices have already existed in both Israel and Hungary. Unfortunately, they were repealed by the same politicians that created them after they found that the officers interfered with too many of their decisions. But that was only possible because the commissioners didn't have a law to back them up. 
Um, I hope that some of you will have at least heard of the well-being of future generations. In Wales, with this act, the situation is different. Now, it's my role as Future Generations Commissioner, and um, I often say that I think I probably got one of the coolest job titles in Wales because my job is set out in statute to act as the guardian of the interests of future generations, so no, no pressure. Um, I did think it was... Speaking here at the Senate, the Welsh Parliament, is their first commissioner for future generations. Sophie Howe, who started in 2016 and is definitely having an impact. We've seen a previous government support for a 17-mile extension to Wales's major motorway turned down on environmental grounds. It's been in the wings for about 25 years. We've seen a law to enable 16 to 18-year-olds to vote go through the parliament. We've seen a youth parliament established. We have seen huge changes, particularly in how we join up looking at air pollution as a health issue and transport issues. So we're seeing the silos start to disappear. I believe there is a movement uh, forming here in Wales and we have a statutory uh, platform and framework to hold our government to account to deliver on that movement. And I hope that you will be part of it. Thank you. I think there is more interest in the idea of looking after future generations now than there has been in the whole of my political lifetime. As little as 10 years ago, I felt as though I was a voice in the wilderness in the context of proposing that we should look after future generations through a political mechanism, through a legal mechanism. So I've been on calls in the USA, in Canada, in Australia, in Hawaii, in the Philippines. And I think in many ways, probably the most notable has been New Zealand with Jacinda Ardern elected again. New Zealand is very interested. So my message to other countries is what the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act is, is a values framework to help you make decisions. With the threats of climate change, with what's happening in the context of COVID, everything we've seen through Black Lives Matter, people across the world are looking for a new kind of values framework. And one of the things that has been absolutely clear to me is that the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act is a values framework that has an ability to respond to all those issues. There's a real groundswell of work on behalf of future generations, and it feels like something is shifting. What's happening today is that there are more and more public discussions about intergenerational justice and long-term thinking and long-term public policy. In other words, the demos, the people who is included as kind of citizens who should be heard, is expanding to include future people. And this is a really important shift partly because of the climate crisis and a recognition that these are very long-term issues, but also because of technological risks like threats of bioweapons, then also the risks in public health care, the idea that there might be another pandemic on the horizon and are we planning for it? But I think there's a fourth area that's really important, which is a recognition that deep inequalities in society, wealth inequalities and racial injustice too, get passed on from generation to generation. The common denominator amongst all these issues is the short-termism of our politics and the need for more long-term thinking. And we're also seeing what I think of as a time rebel movement emerging. If you put together these legal campaigns, people who are doing future design in Japan, the desire to have future generations commissioners, all these things, which might look fragmented at first, but together they form, I think, a genuine movement of rethinking politics. And I think it's an extraordinary shift in the history of democracy. middle of recording this, the Longtime Academy, I've had a baby, Sol, who ended up arriving very dramatically on Christmas Day. So, when I've not been interviewing experts or reading books about time, I've been spending ages worrying. 
specifically about all the potential threats to the life of my little boy, extrapolating them to the worst possible outcomes. Is that blanket too thick? Will he expire from the heat? Is his seatbelt on too tight? Will it kill him? Will that car swerve onto the pavement and take us out? Will he choke on that piece of cooked broccoli I've just given him? And on and on and on. It's clear that my admittedly slightly anxious brain seems hardwired to scope out all these immediate dangers. But of course, things like climate change, massive inequality and unchecked tech are much more likely to threaten his life in the future. Now, thanks to the folk we've heard from in this episode, it feels like a politics that takes care of his and future generations is slowly becoming a reality. And whilst that's not going to stop me worrying about whether I've made his nappy life-threateningly tight or whether I've adequately mashed his greens, it does give me a little more hope for his future. Please share this episode with someone you think would be interested in getting long time and come on over to thelongtimeacademy.com to connect with me, get involved with our Longtime Academy community and find a load of tools to deepen your journey. Remember, there's a new longtime practice for you to do this week from clan mother Mama Bear. It's an extraordinary chance for you to experience the Haudenosaunee practice, the words before all else. And next time we meet, we're going to delve into what it means when we talk about decolonizing our futures. We'd love to hear from you on how getting long time is making you feel about the present and the future and include your voice notes in a future episode. Just head to the show notes for more info on how to do that. The Long Time Academy comes to you from Headspace Studios and The Long Time Project and is produced by Scenery Studios. It was created and produced by Lena Presswood and me, Ella Saltmarsh, with producers Madeline Finlay and Ivor Manley. Executive producers at Headspace Studios are Ash Jones, Leah Sutherland and Morgan Seltzer. Our original music is by Tristan Cassell-Delavoie, Scott Sorensen and Chris Mergier. <laughs>